Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Sierra Free Podcast. Today, we are joined by former PGMOL General Manager and ex-FIFA referee Keith Hackett. Keith, thanks for joining us today. How have you been? I'm very well, thanks, Christian. So before we start, a bit of background on Keith for those who don't know him. Keith was born in Sheffield, England in June of 1944. He started refereeing in 1960. For 12 years, I refereed in local parks. Uh, we were amateur. I would probably do about 100 games a season. We don't have the tournaments like you have in the States and around other parts of the world. It, this is about leagues at junior level, ongoing competitions with a great deal of history. And in 1973, I was put onto the what is then was then the linesman's list. We know it as assistant referee. Spent a couple of years on the Football League, the professional game, and then was promoted to the Football League. And uh, I did service on the Football League. Premier League was formed during that period, towards the end of my career, for 23 years. Uh, I refereed at that level and refereed all the major competitions in England and many major competitions around the world. Sort of highlights, I suppose, was the 1979 FA Cup final, where I was the linesman. Uh, Manchester United versus Arsenal. In 1981, I refereed the 100th FA Cup final between Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester City. That went into a replay. In, you have to understand that in the, the FA Challenge Cup, which was one of the oldest in the world, you only get to referee that particular competition once in your career, if you're lucky, if you're in that top echelon of referees. I did the Charity Shield, Everton v Liverpool. I did the Middle Cup final, Oxford... Uh, QPR. And then in 81, I was made an international referee, FIFA. I remained on that panel for 10 years. At the start of my career on the international panel, I was a guest referee on the North American Soccer League. So I came across, based in New York, but flew everywhere in America and Canada, refereeing about three games per week over about an eight-week period. Keith then went on to officiate several World Cup matches in that time. And then in 1988, Keith officiated in the European Championships, the semifinals of the Seoul Olympics, and the Football League Centenary match. He then retired in 1995-96. Keith also talked about when... In 86, in the middle of my career, I wrote a book called Pocket's Law. And then in 81, before that, I was doing a weekly column in Shoot magazine where an artist would draw the strips and I would answer questions on the laws of the game. We've done five of those books and it became sort of feature in one of our national newspapers, The Guardian, for a few years. And the outcome of that was to educate the public and then put forward the proposal of professional refereeing and out of which then PGMO, the Professional Game Match Officials Limited, was formed. I became the development manager. I didn't want to live in London, to, in truth. So I was happy being the development manager, meeting up with the referees on a regular basis, assessing them, coaching them. And then I became the boss after about 18 months. And in that time then, decided to innovate so the communication kits that you see around the world, I introduced into football. Towards the end, uh, I had online technology and worked with Orkai to develop that product. We had Prozone, which was a detailed assessment program on every aspect of the referee's performance, the speed profiles and everything. I introduced sports science, um, sports psychology, vision science, nutrition into the programs 
um, at a level of accountability as well. So that meant that some referees who didn't attain the standards had to be relegated and new faces brought in. So it was tough on them. But I wanted the very best. My business plan was to create a cadre of world-class referees. I think we did that. Uh, we had a, about 10 really top-class officials that were getting games on a regular basis across Europe. Um, and then um, during that period, uh, Asher Mendelssohn from uh, US Soccer and Nelson Rodriguez, who was the Deputy Chief Exec, uh, came across and spoke to me. He was the deputy chief of the MLS. We started discussions. I was able to open up in terms of how we, the PGML, were formed, how that could shape in America. Um, I was offered the job to do that, but sadly, and it is one of my regrets, I had to turn it down because I was contractually obliged with the PGML. Uh, so the timing was wrong, but I was able to recommend someone else to that role. And, and I think the, P, the pro referee has been a huge success. And I'm pleased that people like Howard Webb, who refereed the World Cup final, of course, in 2010, and I know very well, is running that program. Um, and I can say that I think that uh, the very best operation of VAR is in America at the moment, as against what we're seeing here in England. Some of the other highlights, of course, is that I was also uh, a referee expert with UEFA and I helped write the UEFA referee convention, which is now a standard process across the 54 nations. That is referee recruitment, retention, monitoring, um, mentoring, coaching, fitness uh, training, selection, all those sort of things were part of which I helped to uh, introduce into the game and world of referee. Currently, I write for the Daily Telegraph most weeks on controversial decisions. I pay, appear on radio regularly uh, discussing refereeing. And um, I'll do, obviously, articles for China, for the biggest football magazine over there in uh, Beijing. And I also critique uh, Chinese Super League uh, referees for uh, PPTV, a large sort of uh, media platform that operates across Asia. Right. Thanks, Keith. So let's get into why you decided to start refereeing in the first place. Started refereeing. I was playing in, I was playing in, in England. And um, way back, and then one of a member of each team had to go and take a referee's examination. I was the volunteer. I had no intention of refereeing at that point. And then was um, one Saturday I was free. I had no game, and I took a phone call. I answered the phone call. It was your refereeing Hills Boys Club versus Sheffield United Juniors at, at intake school. And before I could say no, I didn't want to do it, the man had gone. And he was the county FA secretary with a great deal of power. And so I refereed that football match and thoroughly enjoyed it. And that was the start of, of a career. Uh, my involvement with uh, US soccer has, has 
fascinated really, I think, from my time with uh, refereeing on on the uh, North, North American Soccer League. I gained a lot from that experience, uh, dealing with the very top players, traveling the country. Well, soccer at that point was probably embryonic as a sport within the country. There were much more dominant sports. And when Asher Mendelssohn and, and Nelson Rodriguez asked to see me, they came across to England. We had lots of discussion, lots of debate. There were lots of things that they took on board. And I've seen those in operation. I've seen certain areas where there's been improvements. But I think from a, a refereeing perspective, what you've got to understand is everybody thinks it's a lonely job. But, you know, the difference between playing and refereeing is when you're playing, you're part of a team. And that team, you might only get the ball for one or two minutes in a 90-minute match. In refereeing, you lead a team with two assistants and you're involved in the game before, during and post-match. And therefore, there are all aspects of skill sets that you have to develop. And at the same time, I was an apprentice in a steelworks in Sheffield, learning my trade and craft. And I believe very strongly that Refereeing gave me a lot of management skills that then went on to me eventually becoming a sales and marketing director uh, with a very successful company. And, um, but nonetheless, without success, came pressures because getting time off work to referee football matches was difficult. You know, you had a, an important role within the company. And so, for those informative years, I would be taking my annual holiday leave in half days to enable me to work till two, three o'clock, depending on where the ground is, and then get in my car and drive to Old Trafford or Anfield, on the odd occasion, drive to London, referee the football match, get back in the car and get home for two in the morning and then to compensate for leaving the company early, I would be in the company at seven in the morning. You know, and everybody said, I thought you had a match last night. Yeah, sure. And some of those games were occasionally on television. So it's it quite amazing that side. At what point in your refereeing career did you decide that you wanted to become a professional referee? Well, that's interesting because um, I didn't because uh, what you have to understand is that throughout my career, you know, we only had professional referees. That is paid, sole job as a, as a professional sportsman after I'd retired. And I instigated that change. Throughout my career, I was professional in my approach, but I'm really an amateur in a professional game. So I had to, uh, you know, work during the week and then at the weekends, appreciate uh, football league or Premier League games. And, and occasionally in midweek, referee football league game. So we were amateurs at that stage up to the, the late 90s 
in a professional environment. And that was true around the world. There were no full-time referees. And in fact, when we first formed the PGMOL, uh, part of the agreement and arrangements we had to make was that, uh, yes, they would become professional, but we would have to allow them to have a second job in which they could work a maximum of 20 hours per week. So if you take Howard Webb, who, who became a professional referee, uh, Howard was also a, uh, a ranking police officer. So he was a sergeant in the police force. So when, when he refereed, in that week, he would have to get 20 hours of work. So often, he would be refereeing Arsenal or Tottenham or, or the Midlands or in the Northwest and Northeast clubs. And then having completed that game, he would then be driving home, taking off his, if you like, he's already taken off his referee's kit, replacing it with a police officer's uniform. And so uh, for the first few years of, the, of having professional referees in England, and remember we were the first, we had to work on that arrangement. So it was a, a subtle change to becoming full-time. But within that, we used to meet every three days, every two weeks to analyze performances and have group discussion. So if there were some faults and errors, we would uh, discuss, discuss those individually, but also within the group. So that if we found a better way of handling a particular problem, uh, everybody knew within the group of referees. Right, thanks, Keith. So what do you think has been the most difficult thing for you as a referee? I think getting a referee to confess, confess to his errors is always a difficult one. I... Um, because I think we, we live in a world, this is not arrogance, this is a world of confidence. We have to be confident. So when you make a mistake on the field, and I'm sure we make, we're human in a, in a fast moving game, so we do make errors. But the thing that we do as referees is we win them. During the course of the match, if we think we've made an error, we have to forget it, we have to put it out of our mind. Otherwise, it will um, act in a negative fashion on your performance. I think that when I've sent players off, I've always found that as a failure, not one of strength. I've always examined, the, the, when I've issued red cards, I've always examined that those red cards, where films are available, clips are available, videos, examine them in detail, and sometimes the entire game to see at what point could I have intervened to prevent a red card? What approach could I have made in relation to uh, managing that particular game? And so I think that at times the errors, if you like, are about the passion that I have for the game and recognizing that the game is about players and not the match officials. And sometimes you get drawn into the passion of the game and perhaps you allow too much to flow. I suppose the biggest uh, example of that was 
in the late 90s, Manchester United at Old Trafford played Arsenal in front of a full audience, I think 80-odd thousand spectators. The game was going extremely well. It was very competitive because these two teams were challenging for the top of the league. And then all of a sudden, we had a mass confrontation. It lasted for about 15, 20 seconds. And I was then, I calmed it down very quickly and left with a dilemma of who do I send off? And my view was I could send all 21 off that had been involved. There was only one player not involved in the match confrontation, and that was the goalkeeper of Arsenal, David Seaman. And as a consequence, I didn't send anybody off. I gave two yellow cards, knowing that we would go to a hearing at the Football Association. At that hearing, we showed some video clips, and I was asked, you know, looking at the clips again, would I do anything different? And I said, well, of course, if I'd seen what I've seen on the video replay, I would have dismissed players, but I, I don't have the video replay. And therefore, as a consequence, would tell me which players, it's all 21 or it's none. And then we sort it out in this room. And in fact, they did. And they thought that was the right approach. And for the first time and the only time, in, in the history of football and the Football League and the Premier League, the two teams were deducted points. So they were fined and points deducted. That's not happened since. It didn't happen up to that point. This was the first time. And I think it was Arsenal were seen in part as the instigators. So they were deducted two points, having been involved in an earlier fracas at another game. And Manchester United won. Keith, I find it really uh, fascinating that you said that because uh, I heard a clip from Howard Webb when he was on BT Sport where he talked about how there were some times that you just couldn't manage things like, uh, for example, a dog's or red card. How, how do you manage these sort of things? And do you consider red cards like these failures? Uh, I mean, Howard is, is spot on. The, there are uh, laws of the game, specific laws, where a mandatory yellow card is required. Uh, and you as the referee have to carry those laws out. And Howard is quite right to highlight Dogzo, which is the denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. This is where any small foul that takes place outside the penalty area with a player who has no defenders around apart from the goalkeeper and you believe he's going to have a shot on goal, then that is a red card. The complication now is that if that same offence takes place in the penalty area, if the player who's made the foul challenge has made an honest attempt to play the ball, then the outcome is a penalty kick and uh, a yellow card and not red. So referees have to understand that uh, change in law that came in to deal with that. Uh, and some, um, you know, if you if you handle on the on the goal line or near the goal line and prevent a goal, you know, an obvious goal, then that is an instant red card. So there are many areas in the laws of the game where you cannot manage. But what you have to understand is that at the very highest level. You're not managing just a game of soccer. You're actually managing an event. 
And so that doesn't mean to say that you're weak. What you want to do as a referee, um, you want to use the very best management methods to try and um, retain the calmness of players that they don't overreact and they don't do silly things. So that might well be, for example, using a step management process, quiet word, you run alongside a player and you, and you issue a one-to-one -one polite warning. If, if it then becomes public, you bring the, the captain across as well as the player and make it very public, you top the game uh, and you issue, and you might say, I want an improvement from you. You know, not the threat of next time you do that, I'm gonna give you a yellow card. And then of course you've got a yellow card and if the player commits another offense, two yellow cards make a red. So that's part of the referee's uh, ability. But if, you know, I, I was very pleased to be involved in managing Howard Webb and coaching Howard Webb. And um, he was a superb referee. Make no mistake, very early on, I recognized that this guy had huge potential. I can remember having a discussion with him saying, do you realize you could be, you know, of the world in terms of refereeing? And I believe he achieved that. He became the world's number one referee. But he did that through many positive facets to him as an individual. First of all, nothing comes easy. I was able to view Howard's work in terms of his fitness, the amount of effort that he put in physically to be a very fit mobile referee. During his career, this, the, the, there was a change of emphasis in the foot, on the football field. We moved from endurance to also requiring explosive sprinting. And so as a consequence of that, his training regimes changed. He brought that in. Um, but he was also a, an extremely good man manager of players. You know, he had a cutting edge. I can remember in 1996 at the Carling Cup final, he had a mass confrontation in, in, a, in, in almost the 89th minute with some added time to play. And you then saw... Howard Webb manage a very difficult situation at the end of the game. The game hadn't finished, but it was towards the end. And the outcome of that was three red cards. So, you know, and that was from a period of 91 minutes through to 96. And uh, it's a classic piece of top quality officiating by what was then the world's number one referee. And so I think that it, it shows the intensity of not only his fitness levels, but how he worked at improving his management. He was always a brilliant conflict manager. You know, if, if you're a policeman, a police officer in England, remember you're not carrying a gun, uh, like in the States or in other parts of the world, you've really got to rely on a, on a great deal of body language. And so watching him closely and watching other referees closely, we spent time with the sports psychologist in terms of body language, presence, um, all those aspects. 
that actually top sportsmen have. It, it, you know, it's, it, it doesn't matter what the sports are, that they have presence. I mean, look at Brady, who's broke the world record, or his own world record in terms of uh, American football. And you just look at that guy, he's a standout guy because he's got presence. He's got authority because he can, he can think very quickly. And so this, you know, refereeing is a, it's a little bit like um, other sports. You, you first of all, to identify a foul, you must see it. To identify an advantage, you must see it. But you can only see it if you're in the right position at the right time. And therefore, once you've seen it, you've got to recognize what's taken place, think about it, and then act. Whatever the outcome is, either you play an advantage, you, you award a penalty kick, a free kick, you issue a sanction. But that's, that's the basic process of a referee. And what that demands is not just physical attributes, fitness levels that, uh, uh, you know, to be able to cover the game, but also uh, fantastic mental preparation in relation to understanding the laws of the game. But also um, having, if you like, that ability to make very accurate decisions. You know, you can have, you can have a game of soccer where you, you've made maybe two, three hundred decisions in the game. Uh, and if you make an error, just one, and it, 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 you're remembered for the error. You're not, you're not remembered for all the good bits you do. So you are exposed in that, in that situation. Right. Thanks, Keith. So next question I have for, for you is, who have been the most influential people uh, in your refereeing career? I think um, a mix, because what referees should do is always be open to advice. And one of the ways that you can gain improvements in your performance is, first of all, to get the very best people around you. So if you've got, you know, we, I employed uh, Matt Weston, who is now Professor Matt Weston. I think he's doing work for ProRare. Um, he was an expert sports scientist. You know, I went to Loughborough University and had a book on nutrition written specifically for refereeing. But from my own point of view, I, I had people of influence in, in the locality I live. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, a friend of mine, a referee of, of some repute, uh, Howard and I know him really well. Uh, Harold Acne sadly passed away 91 years, so he's had a, a good life. But um, he was a character. And he didn't pull any punches. If he thought you were taking a ride or you weren't doing the job properly, he would tell you. I would watch lots of referees. I worked with Jack Taylor, who was referee the final, I think, in 1970 of the World Cup. And he had a quiet style, but again, similar size to me, six foot two, and um, had authority. So you, you watch those things in the same way that I watched other sports, other officials in other sports, you know, very clearly, if you look at American uh, football, not soccer, if you look at American football, you see the very clear signaling that those match officials give, leaving no one any, in any doubt. 
And so you suddenly realize that that trip and officiating on a North American soccer league gave me the opportunity to watch a few games and also to say, right, my own stand signals have got to have greater clarity. What I say to players have to have greater clarity. And so, and you have to understand, I mean, again, you're dealing with players from other countries that have different attributes, different body languages, different means of communicating, different actions on the field of play. So you're a mediator. But I always say to some people that, in effect, you're like the conductor of an orchestra and you've got the baton, your baton is the whistle. And you can create the tempo. I think sometimes some referees are overindulgent. They almost want to whistle and stop every incident in the game. And as a spectacle, the game itself degenerates. Whereas the good referees apply advantage, they keep the game flowing. Their interference level is when it's required, where it has the greatest impact. And so that conductor's baton is what and how you should create and, uh, and officiate a game. And of course, the other side of it is that you're working with a team of two assistant referees and you, you want them to be part of your team. So you've got to manage those, um, how you communicate with them, how you uh, ensure that they understand fully what you're doing on the football match. Now, in my career, we didn't have communication kits. And so I introduced those communication kits and the, and the outcome was that that improved, if you like, uh, the standard of officiating because they were able to help each other on the field of play, get the, get the signals across, chat and discuss. So people like Howard uh, would have for almost every game, the same two assistant referees, and they became a, a very strong team. Mike Malarkey, Darren Camp, and Howard Webb were a world-class team of officials. And rightly, all three of them went on to referee the World Cup final. Right, and so do you think the emotions in a match have an effect on a referee, even if just a little bit? Well, I think that what is so important is for the referee to manage his own emotions, first of all, and try to be neutral. Body language is part of the game's performance. You can, through your eyes and your facial expressions, show when you're angry, show when you disapprove. But you've also got to reflect that you're confident in what you're doing. And you've got to be clear that confidence can easily transfer to arrogance. So you've got to be careful that, that you, to have this ability to communicate is, is so important. And I think those, if you like, are transferable skill sets that you can coach into referees. You can actually say, right, okay, these are the things we want you as a referee to build on. Um, you know, some, some referees are very sloppy with their, their signaling and you can easily pick that up. Some don't put in the required effort. You know, they, 
they go out ill-prepared. They think, oh, this is an easy game. I've, I've done these before. I know they are. There's no two games that are alike. And so preparation is vital in a referee's performance uh, because it, it avoids a potential crisis in the game if you're not aware. Right, and so going into another topic, which I know you wanted to talk about, was what do you think are some of the misunderstood aspects of refereeing at the top level? Great question. A really great question. I think in some instances, they feel that because we don't play the game, we don't know the game itself. And that is really annoying. Because, you know, I did 1,200 games as a referee, having played for a bit, before I became a referee. It's a different skill set. I don't, as a referee, I don't have to shoot a goal. I don't have to head the ball into the net. The biggest shortfall I, I find at times is that managers, coaches, and players, insufficient understanding of the laws of the game, the detail of understanding the laws of the game. And I think, you know, they probably know and understand when they were a player and then they become a coach and they still live in the past sometimes. And, and you know, it's not made easy because law changes that take place sometimes are interpreted by a group of referees around the world differently. Let's take, for example, that, and I mentioned how well Greg Barkey at Pro referee is operating VAR. And other countries have a lot of catching up to how it's implemented in the MLS. Um, I think VAR's in interruption, if you like, is one in three games in uh, the MLS. And in England, we're getting it sometimes two or three times in a game. There's an overindulgence by the VAR operators. That's lack of training. They didn't, if you like, capture the old requirements of the, of the VAR protocols. They decided we don't need the pitch side monitor. So they operated without the pitch side monitor for a year. And I think they've struggled over here with it. You know, we put lines on offside and sadly, having been involved in goal line technology, I know that the technology with the line is not as good as it should be. It's nowhere near the quality of goal line technology. You know, we're operating 500 frames per second, seven cameras around each goal, uh, without any manual interference from a human being. And if you can achieve that, almost you're creating a robotic, you're actually taking it out of the hands of the referee and you're gonna get accurate decisions with offside. Uh, there are aspects of the offside law. If you're going to get into um, operating it in a similar way to goal line technology, which they're attempting to do, then it's got to be a change of law in order to accommodate the technology. You know, I think there are other things that are probably important to the game. Um, I think we're late in in terms of dealing with head injuries. You know, we've got a lot of former English top players who are suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, Parkinson's disease. Some have been attributed to heading the ball. 
and it's only in recent months that we've brought in uh, concussion substitution. But you know, when when concussion takes place, we've not dealt with that uh, well enough. But you know, it takes time to change. Other sports, I think, are handling it much better. Right, Keith. So. What are some of your unique qualities or skills that have helped you become one of the most successful referees in history? I think an ability to communicate, um, a passion for the game. I watch as much games as I possibly can. And of course, honesty and integrity. And sometimes I'll say things that upset people. And that's only because I want them to be better. You know, often in England, uh, I might write a column in a newspaper that's criticising a decision. Uh, you know, um, there was one at the weekend where the referee in the Liverpool-Everton game gave a penalty kick. It was a very tight call. It was, a, it was you know, and the referee's in a good position. So from my point of view, I'm not, you know, okay, I might be given another angle. But, but what happened there was he gives a penalty kick. There's a review of the penalty kick. And as, as he's doing that, I'm, I'm looking at the game and saying, well, if he awards a penalty kick here, then it's a red card, the denial of an ob obvious opportunity. And of course, he came back, awarded the penalty kick, and didn't issue the red card. And so I immediately picked on that and said, well, it's, you know, I'll support the penalty kick because he was in a good position and the film play, but why did it? a senior referee at the very top level, not then carry through the appropriate sanction for the offence that's been committed. And, and then you start to outline, because a lot of people don't know the laws of the game, but then you say, look, this is where the offence that took place by the defender, there was no attempt to play the ball. So I can't give him a yellow card, it's a red card. So. Part of, if you like, the, the radio interviews I did on Monday after that particular game was to explain why it was a red card and not a, a yellow, because they said, well, just a minute, the laws were changed, double jeopardy. And I'm saying, well, the laws were changed, but in effect, if you are not making a genuine attempt to play the ball and you commit a foul inside the penalty area and there are no defenders going to accept it, intercept it, in that sense, then it becomes a red card offence. So those are the aspects, I think, that as a referee, you analyse. And of course, you need to have a constant flow of law information. So I'm a, I'm a massive believer that if we go back to VAR, that everything should be communicated on the big screen. Now, I've got to tell you, I think Greg Bark is not quite there yet in terms of that. But I see that operate regularly in other sports and in cricket and uh, rugby union and rugby league. And it works really well. And our referees and referees around the world are capable of communicating effectively to gain that selling of that particular decision to the public. I believe that if the public have paid to watch the game, they need to be informed. You know, and, and that information is so important. Yeah, Keith, so I, I like that we got into this topic because um, the other day I was talking to, currently he's select two referee, Tim Robinson, 
Um, I asked them why we should or shouldn't be able to listen into their conversations or VAR. And what he told me was that he didn't think that the referees were ready and that there were a few things that maybe the public weren't ready to hear already. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know Tim, but I've seen his name. Uh, and he's a championship referee, as you say, for the EFL. So um, he doesn't uh, and hasn't got to get involved in VAR at the moment. Um, th this, is, this is almost saying, well, OK, you can wear the policeman's uniform. You can go out on the streets, but don't speak to anyone. The whole, the whole aspect, the ability to communicate, and it's training. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted that the MLS are evolving. That, that Greg Barkey and Howard are evolving the process to be, because you want to be transparent. You know, I, I, you know, I believe strongly that part of the role of a referee is to inform. Now, um, we don't, we hear very little from the boss of the PGMOL here in England. Um, there's little communication. And sometimes I do think that, you know, they, they come out. I mean, What's amazing is this weekend we had a handball in, in the game at Burnley where the, the hand and arm was clearly extended. That was, for me, uh, an action that was deliberate. Not that deliberate's in the law, but he's made himself unnaturally bigger, which satisfies the law. The balls uh, hit the, the arm. It was very clear. And you then had a statement coming out from the Premier League within an hour saying the referees made the right decision. It's not a penalty kick. When I was inundated on social media because, hey, referees who are current referees at all levels of the game are saying, hey, it's a penalty kick. Why is, why is the, uh, why are the people in power at, at the PJRL and Premier League come out and made a statement. Is that to fool us? Because we, you know, we have a knowledge of the game, but not only that, it doesn't help the public's perception of what is a foul and what is not a foul. It's misinformation. And then, of course, they have a, a spokesman called Dermot Gallagher, who's a really nice guy. And Dermot comes out on Sky on a Monday doing a review. And he, he and I'm thinking, I hope Dermot doesn't say that that isn't a penalty kick. And of course, he comes out and he says that is a penalty kick. And so, it, you know, you, the PGRL, the organization, can't back two horses. They've got to determine that you don't make that mistake. And sometimes, in trying to protect themselves and, and going to huddle and close shot, um, they're not helping the, the, the public's perception of how VAR operates and the quality of the, of the decisions that, that can be given. So back to the point, I know most of the referees that are currently on the PGMOL in England, on the Premier League, and the majority of them are capable of communicating. And if I needed to train them within a couple of weeks, given a myriad of incidents, uh, that I've got plenty of video clips to play, uh, we would ensure that they say the right things. And therefore, I think, I think I'm delighted that the MLS are communicating uh, and, and people can listen in. It enhances the decision, and it's part of 
you know, at the very highest level, it's, it's about entertainment. And part of entertainment is to inform the public that may not know soccer. They may be new to the game. It might be, in America, it might be their third choice of sport. So why not inform them? Do you think that the authority that a referee needs comes naturally or is it something that can be learned? How you referee on the football field, all of it, all of it, uh, you can be trained, educated to become the very best. That's down to hard work, but for sure. You know, I, I work with, um, with lots of referees in terms of body language. You know, there's, there's a guy out in uh, Cameroon who seven, eight years ago, I was there uh, running a workshop. He's now an international official because we've corresponded. We had a lot of Australian and, and quite a few New Zealand referees come to, come to England and, um, and they watched the PGMOL. They went away and became uh, World Cup referees. I mean, Michael Hester, Peter O'Leary refereed in the World Cup uh, as New Zealand referees. One year, we, well, I think the last World Cup, we didn't have a referee in England at the World Cup and New Zealand had two. Uh, so it shows you the opportunity that exists. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, part of, I hope, the role of, of people like Howard Webb and Mark Fattenberg and others are capable of, of passing their skill sets, what they've achieved onto others, through their quality communication ability. So obviously we all have bad games. Um, like you said, the Arsenal Man United game. How do you deal with such a match um, in your mind afterwards? Every game that you officiate is a learning op opportunity. You know, take the good points because this is like a weighing scale, a balance. You know, sometimes referees can be their own worst enemy. They can erode their confidence because all they do is concentrate on the, the one big error that they've made. And, and it can be very debilitating and affect confidence, erodes it very quickly. I think what you've got to do is you've, you've got to analyse every game that you referee. And perhaps, you know, I've always recommended that what a referee should do is um, two things. One, have a self-assessment, um, have a diary and a self-assessment so that what did I eat before the game, where did I arrive, what the two teams were, maybe the outcome of the score, and then how you believe you performed. What? And then the three points where you considered you were really strong and the three points where you thought actually you could do better and then how can you affect those things how can you retain all those good bits and deal with the the negatives um, and at the same time you know at the beginning of every season you set smart objectives specific and and the smart objectives you you sit down and these are the targets. You know, they've got to be achievable and you've got to be over time. And so the natural thing is for a referee always to progress. Because if you stand still, you regress very quickly. So, you know, you, you've never, you, the, you've got to have a belief that you can always do better. Yeah, right, Keith. And so we know that along your career, you've done a lot of big games. But are there any games that maybe you want to relive or that you really enjoyed and you wish you could have done? 
I think for an English referee, right, an English referee will pick the FA Cup final because of the tradition, because of how we start out refereeing. You start out with ambition, but not necessarily that ambition. The ambition might be that whatever classification you're at, you want to be the next on your career to progress. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to take short, medium and long-term objectives in your career. So uh, for me, um, you know, as a, as a, as a boy uh, growing up, I watched the FA Cup final. Uh, I, uh, at that time, didn't visualise refereeing the FA Cup final, which is very historical. I mean, you got that opportunity and, and being a referee that was given the 100th FA Cup final. Very early on in my career, there's a, there's a referee on the professional game. Um, I was very lucky, very fortunate. And of course, the second game, uh, Manchester City versus Tottenham, uh, saw Ricky Villa of, of Tottenham score an outstanding goal, rounding about three or four players from the ball in the back of the net. And therefore, I think that sort of was the icing on top of the cake for remembering that particular game. And for me, it was a fantastic experience doing it on a Saturday and then getting the replay on a Thursday, you know, and having been there as a spectator, as a youngster, suddenly realising just I'm, I'm officiating in an iconic stadium. So I think that is my biggest memory. I've been very fortunate because, you know, I've refereed in Azteca Stadium, Giant Stadium, Bernabeu, you know, the Seoul Olympics under the, under the Olympic torch, refereeing uh, Gdansk for Juventus at the height of the uprising, the last game between an East and West German side on unification night, uh, the European Championships, um, Germany, Italy, the opening game. So, I've been very fortunate. There the are lots of games, um, you know, but I have to tell you this, a little bit like Howard Webb, we would referee those games, but when we had an opportunity, we'd referee a schoolboys game, or we'd go and referee in a park, a local park, between two pub teams in England. I think there is a, a resemblance in terms of Howard's career and mine that, that almost, I didn't, I didn't, of course, referee a World Cup final like Howard did, uh, which must be one of his outstanding memories. But there's a parallel. He refereed in the area where I refereed. And so the teams that he officiated, I, I used to officiate. So I think um, good memories. And I think when you look as uh, someone who started his career in 1960, little did I think that refereeing would take me to 100 countries meeting presidents and royalty and and enjoying games in in areas where parts of the world which are incredible and then having a period as the premier league referee ambassador going into south africa all the countries in africa uh, mexico and into asia creating workshops and convincing people to become referee and so there are lots of referees around the world now that attended those courses and are refereeing and enjoying the games and doing very well, some of them. Right, that's great. And so in all of those big games that you've done, what, what do you think has been 
some of your favorite exchanges with the players or managers? Yeah, I can I can remember confronting Manchester United's number nine, Joe Jordan at the time, who was unhappy with one of my decisions. And uh, I said to him that um, if he didn't shut up, he would be banned from visiting uh, Springfellow's nightclub in London. And he looked at me aghast and he said, no, 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 no. And I said, well, my brother's a director of that company. <laughs> and I know that you go there. So I'll just put a ban on the gate. So there, there are many exchanges with players, um, you know, and managers. I think those, those things make it enjoyable. You know, if you look at, there are many iconic players I've refereed. I can remember being stuck in traffic in Lincoln Tunnel on my way to referee at Giant Stadium, New York Cosmos. All of a sudden, the driver jumped out of the car, started shouting, and within a few minutes, sat alongside me was Carlos Alberto, the captain of uh, New York Cosmos, who I'd watched um, a few years earlier lift the World Cup for Brazil. Uh, a great memory. I can remember my first game in Giants, uh, New York Cosmos and uh, Giorgio Canaglia, the star of New York Cosmos, uh, jumped up on the back of his opponent, headed the ball into the net, and I disallowed the goal. And um, he came running towards me, of which I showed him a yellow card instantly. And he was saying, don't you know who I am? And I go, well, I will shortly. What is your name? He goes, I am Giorgio Canaglia. I am New York Cosmos. Um, in his Italian accent. And of course, I've gone, yeah, fine. Uh, if you do that again, I'll, I'll uh, issue a red card then. And at the end of the game, he came into the dressing room and asked for the yellow card, and I signed it and uh, handed it to him. And I always, so there are exchanges with players that are different to how the public perceives. Ah, I absolutely love that story, Keith. Um, right, going into our next question. If you could give your younger self some advice, in relation to refereeing, what would it be? The advice I would give myself is that could you be fitter? Could you be more mobile? You know, the modern referee, you know, some, someone like Howard Webb used to run 12,000 metres average per game um, and up to 1,500 uh, metres at seven metres per second. And he could run from penalty area to penalty area in 11 seconds. Now, if you ask, what would I do? Mine was about nine and a half thousand. So you can imagine how the game shifted and then how it went up a gear when we became professional referees. So fitness is the thing that I admire. And it's probably the area that if we take the current PGMR referees, it's the one area that I criticize most. If you're not, if you're not capable, of an explosive sprint, then you're going to be out of position and exposed to making errors. Thanks, Keith. Now, closing into the final sections of our podcast, what is some advice you have in general just for referees, new or more experienced? I, I think what I'd like you to do is to record every game that you referee and also to reset your targets, to aspire to do something that is greater than what you think you can achieve. It's within every referee to get to the very highest level. But it's only achieved 
through hard work and efficiency. And efficiency is about training properly, eating properly, and treating every game that you referee as a cup final, where you want to deliver the very best performance. So it's no good saying, oh, I've got two easy teams here. What you've got to do is prepare thoroughly. Begin to understand the, the tactics of a game. Be aware of the impact of a substitution in terms of how that impacts on the game, how that can, that can impact on your performance. You know, it might be a player that you suddenly recognise as is a player that's had a number of red cards and he's, he's a bit of an assassin in the game. You keep an eye on that type of player. You know, this, this nonsense that people say, well, everybody has to be treated equally. That's fine. What you're doing is not every game is equal and players within the game are not cloned. They're all different. They all have different personalities. And, uh, and maybe you, you need to learn and understand those, those personalities. What are some of the topics that you might want to touch on that maybe we didn't talk about? I suppose at times you can look at video clips and look at individual referees. Take a, a view in terms of current referees and how good they are. And, and can, can you, in fact, look at their strengths? What can you learn from them? How do they deal with conflict? Why are they smiling at that particular point? What is the impact of that? And probably... Uh, you know, there are several books that you can read that will give you an insight into improving your career. Um, you know, I mean, I, I sort of, I'm not really sure, I, I don't think it's for sale anymore, but, but some of the things that I've put in here, it, uh, you know, they move out of turn, but effectively what you're trying to do is shorten the learning knowledge, try and absorb as much knowledge as possible. Thanks a lot, Keith, for coming on the podcast. If our listeners want to connect with you online, where can they find you? Well, they can, uh, they can email me at khackett, that's K-H-A-C-K-E-T-T, the number three, at sky.com. And uh, if the emails come through, I'll answer them. Right, and don't forget, you can find Keith Hackett on Twitter as well, at HackettRef. That is H-A-C-K-E-T-T-R-E-F. Keith Hackett, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. This was the CR Referee Podcast, and we'll see you guys till the next episode. I'm going to recommend a review for penalty. Ah!